it's sort of ingrained in us from the time we're little kids. You know, we're fed things that have those ingredients in them. And it's natural that we continue to crave them throughout adulthood. And it's definitely a journey for everybody. I don't think that there are too many people that don't crave those things. I know I myself have gone through many years of trying to wean myself off of some of this unhealthy stuff. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Today, we are going to learn how to unlearn a lifetime of unhealthy habits. It's not always the easiest thing in the world to do, right? A lot of people think that change is hard, and certainly it can be. But today we are going to try to make things just a little bit easier. So we're going to try to unlearn unhealthy cooking habits. For so many of us growing up, we thought nothing of adding oil to the pan or butter And it was really just an afterthought to add salt to a dish before you even tasted it. And over time, the problem was all of that, the salt, the butter, the oil, it adds up. It adds up to take a toll on our health. We're talking about high blood pressure and heart disease, certainly obesity. You have to mention that. And despite all of those conditions and a host of others, And maybe even looking down on the scale and being unhappy with the number that's staring you right back in the face. But the interesting thing is, at the time, we still think we're eating healthy. It's funny how that works, isn't it? For the most part, we still think that we're eating healthy despite all of that. So today, let's go ahead and try to unlearn those unhealthy cooking habits. Let's break that cycle. And to do that, we will be welcoming Chef Lauren Kretzer back to the exam room to give her five tips for unlearning unhealthy habits in the kitchen. We're talking about salt, we're talking about oil, and we're talking about sugar. Indeed, we are sending up the SOS for those of you who are just getting going on a plant-based diet. We're going to be showing you the ropes with Lauren here. And for us longtime vegans, it never hurts also to have a little bit of a brush up, right? A refresher course. And then also on the show today, Dr. Vanita Rahman and the Fiber Queen, Lee Crosby. They will be teaming up to answer your questions when we open up the doctor's mailbag. Had a bunch of good ones again. People asking about getting vitamin E from sources other than nuts and seeds. And then someone wanted to know about overcoming that dreaded weight loss plateau. You know, you're doing so good. You see the scale, the numbers keep coming down and down and down. And then suddenly, boom, it stops. And no matter what it is you do, that scale just doesn't want to budge. So what can we do to get that thing moving again? They've got the answers. But before we get to any of that, let's first learn to unlearn 
those unhealthy cooking habits with Chef Lauren Kretzer. Lauren, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. How are things with you? It's just kind of a crazy time in this world. It is, but you know, things are well here. I'm just keeping busy in the kitchen and I'm excited to be back on the show. I love the fact that you are staying busy in the kitchen because that is exactly why you are here because you have the wisdom that we need to learn. Let's talk about these unhealthy eating habits. You know, there's that holy trinity with the taste buds, salt, oil, and sugar. And I was just doing an interview recently where my guest was explaining to me, it was a gentleman by the name of Adam Sutton. He was explaining like, that is just not from nature when you put all three of those things together in a recipe. But when we taste them, our brain is just like, this is the greatest thing ever. And we crave them and we, you know, just become not dependent on them per se, but man alive, is there ever that temptation and that pull So when we go with this healthier diet and we start to transition away from those types of foods, it can be overwhelming at first. So you've come up with five tips to actually make that happen and make that a reality to unlearn these unhealthy cooking habits. So help us out. Give us some wisdom. How do we get to be healthier in the kitchen? Yeah, so for sure, like you said, those three things are extremely addictive, actually, I think from a mental perspective anyway, and we all crave them. And it's sort of ingrained in us from the time we're little kids, you know, we're fed things that that have those ingredients in them. And it's natural that we continue to crave them throughout adulthood. And it's definitely a journey for everybody. I don't think that there are too many people that don't crave those things. Um, I know I myself have gone through many years of trying to wean myself off of some of this unhealthy stuff and it takes time, um, which brings me to my first tip. So the first thing that I would like to uh, suggest to everybody is just to give your taste buds a chance to reset. So what we eat on a regular basis shapes our taste preferences. So you're going to miss those things starting out if that's what you're used to eating. But if you give yourself a chance, you will eventually stop missing them. And you'll actually grow to prefer your new way of cooking and flavoring food. And you'll start to crave those healthier things too. So just be patient with yourself, yourself your chance to um, give yourself a chance to adjust. And eventually those foods that are so deeply ingrained in our palates will be replaced by the newer, healthier things. And one of the ways that I like to get inspired to sort of kick off a new healthier way of eating is just by getting some inspiration from new cookbooks. So there's a lot of great ones from Forks Over Knives. Um, there's some fantastic YouTube channels where some um, there are some YouTube stars that cook in this healthier vein. And then um, I like to also look on Instagram to follow some people there who will give you fresh inspiration and meal planning ideas and things like that. And then once you have that all set, um, just again, be patient with yourself. Yeah, I find it so funny how the taste buds do change. You you never think that you'll stop craving certain foods, but you do because you've eliminated that stuff out of your diet and your brain. Essentially, the way I look at it from a lay perspective is it just kind of rewires. And and totally. and once you've detoxed off of that that unhealthy stuff, you do you kind of 
you get this compulsion to reach for the kale instead of the potato chip. And, and it's just, it's so funny how over time you start to reach for things that, you know, even as recently as a year ago, you would say, there's no way I would ever want to eat that. But now it's the best tasting thing in the world. Yeah, totally. And I, like I said, I've experienced that myself, that there were things that I never, ever thought in a million years that I would crave. And there were also foods that I never thought I would be able to give up. And here I am, you know, eating a certain way. And it's because I just made those foods a priority in my diet and really was uh, trying very hard to take out the unhealthy stuff. So it, it does work. You just really have to trust in yourself and trust in your body's ability to readjust. What What is one of those foods that you thought, man, no way, no way this is ever going in my mouth, and now you just love it? Well, I mean, pretty much every vegetable I adore. Um, and I also thought I would never be able to eat things like salad without a really oily dressing. So um, that's one thing that I've been personally working on in my diet is cutting back on oils. And um, that actually brings me to my number two tip. So to start cutting back on oil and butter, that's it's tough, but there are definitely ways to get started. And what I like to suggest to people is first just to cut back. So if you can't cut it out completely, that's totally fine. It's acceptable. I, I know it's hard. So if you're used to putting on, let's say, like a quarter cup of dressing onto your salad, you know, start, you know, with maybe two tablespoons and then eventually going back to one tablespoon and then a couple of teaspoons. Um, so with all these tips, I think gradual reduction might work for some people. Um, and for those who would like to cut it out completely, um, I find that when you're cooking savory items, sauteing in a little bit of water or vegetable broth or even a little bit of wine um, can impart some flavor and provide that moisture that you need to saute. And then if you're noticing as you're sauteing that things are looking a little dry, just put a, a little more of whatever liquid it is that you're using until it's reached its desired um, cooking consistency. And then uh, when you're baking, there's things that you can use to replace the oil as well. So a lot of people like unsweetened applesauce. Um, I find that that doesn't impart too much of a different flavor to whatever it is that you're baking. Um, some people love putting in mashed banana. Of course, that lends a little bit of banana flavor, but it does um, keep the baked item really moist, which is nice. Um, so there's just a couple things to get started with. And then, um, of course, I know some people love to deep fry your food. Uh, you can definitely use an air fryer for that. That's something that I invested in a little while back, and I find that it really helps me achieve that really crispy, crunchy texture without a lot of oil. But for those who don't want to invest in a new appliance, you can definitely bake things um, and they'll come out similarly delicious as a, a fried item would. So say, for instance, French fries, you can just set your oven to a really high temperature and then take the potatoes and put them on a piece of silicone um, baking sheet or parchment paper and then just season them up with you know, some garlic powder or salt or pepper, whatever it is that you like. And then just roast them at a high temperature around 425 until they're nice and crisp. Um, so that's another tip that you can use. Do you recommend um, blanching the potatoes before you put them in there at a high temperature? Some people do. I guess it just depends on how thick you like them. So if you like a thicker French fry, then that's something that you can do. Um, but if you like a more uh, shoestring style, then I don't think it's necessary. So it just depends on the size. Gotcha. And and then um, finally, if you like, you know, the the coating of a fried item, you can do that as well before you bake it. So I would just toss whatever it is in um, an unsweetened non-dairy milk, and um, you can thicken that with a little bit of cornstarch or arrowroot to replace an egg. 
and then dip that item into like whole grain breadcrumbs or crushed up crackers and season that up with some herbs or garlic powder, nutritional yeast, and then um, put that in the oven as well. And that'll replicate that deep fried batter that you like on a lot of different foods. You know, what's funny specifically uh, about butter is uh, my wife, you know, she still enjoys butter and, and some sort of jam on a toasted bagel like that. That is her weakness. And mm-hmm. um, whenever she asks me to do it, don't tell her I told you this, Lauren, but <laughs> I don't put butter on there. I just put the jam on there and she can't tell the difference. And so that to me makes me think a lot of times we're just doing these things out of habit when they are completely unnecessary and they're not adding anything flavor wise to the food. Yeah, for sure. I think that's true. I think just give it a a shot without it. And then if you really find that you're missing it, say you do have that toast with the jam and you definitely notice that the butter is missing. There's other um, non-dairy and more natural things that you can put on that will replicate that fat. So I personally love all nut butters. So peanut butter, almond butter, of course, there's cashew butter, um, lots of different types to try out and see what you like best. And if you don't want to go the nut butter route or say you have a nut allergy, um, coconut butter is is great. Um, and sometimes I actually even like putting hummus, not with jam, but you know, if I'm just having like a, a plain <laughs> if I'm just having like a plain bagel, hummus is actually a great cream cheese stand-in. And I find that it really scratches that itch of something creamy and savory on top of um, a toasted bagel. No doubt. No doubt. I, you know, peanut butter, that can be a weakness for me too. I love peanut butter on toast or on a whole grain bagel or something like that. It's always so good. It's always so good. Uh, But the jam thing. So the jam is sweet. The jam's got some sugar to it. And I know that that's probably another one of the things that you have in your tips here is ways to cut back on that. Yeah, for sure. So that's um, my next tip is cutting back on white and and refined sugars is really important. They're incredibly addictive. So just to start with the jam example that you gave, um, I love to mash up some banana on top of toast. Um, Also, some berries are really great mashed up. So just take some really ripe raspberries or really ripe blackberries and just mash them up with a fork and put that on top of your nut butter toast. And that's a whole food alternative to the jam without the added sugar. And you're also getting the fiber from that. So it's really a lot more bang for your buck, but you're still getting those familiar tastes that you're craving. Um, So I've actually been doing that for my kids. So that's a great thing to serve to children as well. And then in terms of replacing white sugar and everything else, just like I said with oil, I think if you slowly cut back on what you're used to having, your body will eventually stop craving so much sweetness. So you might want to start with something like your coffee or tea in the morning, um, just cutting back on the amount of sweetener that you have there. Another thing you can do is you can eventually replace the white refined sugar with um, some more unrefined natural versions, such as coconut sugar, maple syrup, molasses, agave. Those things aren't health foods, but they're definitely better for you um, than the really refined stuff. And then eventually you can move into the whole foods. So instead of using um, you know, extracted sugars, things like dried fruits, mashed up whole fruits, whole dates, date sugar, date paste. Those are all very natural and they will not wreak havoc on your blood sugar the way that a white refined sugar would. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also find that adding things like cinnamon and vanilla extract sort of enhances the natural sweetness of a lot of foods. So if you're really struggling to, you know, eat a bowl of plain oatmeal, say, 
put some cinnamon on there, put a little bit of vanilla extract in there, and it'll sort of enhance the natural sweetness of the oats or the unsweetened dairy milk that you used to cook it with. Um, I mean, non-dairy milk that you used to cook it with. It'll bring out that, those natural sugars. Mm, that's a pro tip right there. That is a pro tip, Lauren Kretzer. I love that one. <laughs> um, I want to go back to the the mashed bananas. I didn't realize until I started eating a plant-based diet how versatile the banana can be. You were talking about using that instead of a nut butter on top of toast. A couple of weeks ago, I got a rancid hit of spinach or something like that. Had a little bit of a tummy issue for a couple of days. And I didn't want to put peanut butter on top of toast because I wasn't moving around. I was kind of sedentary. I was like, all right, well, let me try to keep things as low fat as possible here. So I put the banana on top of the toast. And sure enough, it was as comforting and as tasty as anything I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, and it, that's exactly it. it. Sometimes we just really crave those textures. It's not necessarily the food that you think you're craving itself. It's more just like the creaminess, the slight sweetness. Um, just something familiar tasting. And a lot of these foods will scratch that itch. Yeah, for sure. Um, here's, here's one. I know that the, the next thing on your list, so we're just kind of going down the trinity here. We've talked about uh, oil. We've talked about sugar. Uh, let's talk about salt. What, what can you tell us about salt? Okay, so we all love salt. Most people love salt. It's difficult to imagine cooking without salt. Um, so what I would say is, again, try to reduce where you can. Um, there's also lower sodium versions of some things out there that we like to use to flavor foods, such as um, soy sauce, tamari. Um, just pick out the lower sodium versions of that. Um, but then also when you're done with your recipe and you taste it before you serve it, a lot of times we think, hmm, something's missing. And I think the impulse is to add more salt. But that's not always what we're actually missing. Sometimes what a dish really needs, in most cases I find, is a little bit of acidity. Um, so I find that if I do a little squeeze of lemon, a little squeeze of lime, a splash of apple cider vinegar, not all at once, of course, but you know, pick your the acid that you want to use that complements the other flavors that you're using, just a little bit to start, you know, say a teaspoon, um, and then you can add up, um, add from there if you need to. That usually really rounds out the flavor of the dish. And I find that once I do that, I don't really need to add too much else. So I would always say try adding a little bit of acid first. Uh, if that doesn't work, if you still feel like there's something missing, there are lots of other ways to add flavor to a dish that won't pile on the salt. Uh, so I like using fresh herbs. I love dried herbs too. Um, different spices. I like adding nutritional yeast for some umami and cheesiness. Um, mustard, tomato paste. As I mentioned, there's tamari and shoyu, which are more natural fermented versions of soy sauce, miso. So there's like so many different flavor enhancers out there that can really um, up the ante of your final dish without putting on more salt. Was, was this ever you uh, where so many people are like this, where they don't even taste their food before they reach for the salt that's on the table and start shaking it on top? We have become so accustomed to just salting everything that that, I think, is, is a habit also that needs to be broken. Like not even talking about the recipe itself, but just not immediately reaching for that salt without giving it a taste first. Yeah, for sure. I think, again, we're, we're trained to crave it because restaurant food has so much salt in it and processed foods have so much salt in them that, you know, our default is just to crave more and need more. And I think to salt your food before you taste it 
is really doing a disservice to the ingredients that you're using. Because if you're using really fresh veggies and produce and um, whole grains and all all the other delicious things that we cook with um, in, in the vegan world, you're not really giving those foods a chance to shine through. You're just kind of drowning them out and you're dulling your taste buds. Um, and going back to the first tip that I gave is giving your taste buds a chance to readjust. You really want to let them taste the food and learn to be satisfied with the natural flavors of things. You know, and every once in a while, like I was guilty of doing that myself when I was still overweight. Um, but every once in a while I would add salt without tasting the dish first, take a bite and realize immediately that was a big mistake because then <laughs> it went for, you know, just, it was way too salty, way too yeah. salty. You ever had that experience? Definitely. And you know, one thing that we learned in culinary school is you could always add more, but you can't take it back once it's in there. So, you know, definitely make sure you taste your food first and um, only, only then add salt. Pro tip, pro tip. Okay. So we've got four tips down. Let's go with the fifth. And this is a food that kind of almost encompasses everything, not so much maybe the sweets, but it's certainly got the fat and the salt there. We're talking about cheese. What can we do to take that off of our plate and still satisfy <laughs> the craving? This is a tough one. That is the existential question, right? What will we do without cheese? Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, there is life after cheese, and <laughs> there, there are a lot of ways to replicate that. You, The first thing I would say is, you're never going to have an exact replication of mozzarella or blue cheese. Um, But you can provide things in your food that will scratch that itch that will leave you feeling satisfied. That won't make you feel like you're missing that major component of your sandwich or your, or your diet. Um, And really cheese is salt and fat. That's, that's what we crave. Um, Of course there are different flavors and the different types of cheese, but you know, that's really what it provides to, to most food. So, what I would start with is one of the easiest ways that you can add a cheesy flavor to food is using nutritional yeast. Um, some people um, listening to this might be already familiar with nutritional yeast. It's beloved in the vegan community, but if you haven't tasted it yet, despite its weird name, I would strongly urge you to give it a chance. Um, it's, it's really yummy and it's very versatile. You can add it into all types of foods and uh, just shake it on top or mix it into whatever you're using. And it does provide a subtle cheesy flavor. Another thing I love is making a very quick homemade vegan Parmesan. Um, I actually have a recipe up on my website, but there's lots of others online as well. And mine uses some cashews and some hemp seeds, um, nutritional yeast, miso, garlic powder, and it comes together in the food processor in like literally one minute. And I just keep it in a little shaker in my refrigerator and I just add it on top of pastas, um, soups, you know, pretty much anything where I'm craving, you know, that, that salty umami flavor. Um, so that's another tip. Uh, cashew sauces are amazing. So if you have a high speed blender or if you have a regular blender and are willing to soak your cashews in advance, there's all kinds of recipes online for different Alfredo's, mozzarella sauces, um, all kinds of uh, nacho cheese sauces, and those really scratch the itch as well. Um, on top of pizza, on top of nachos, on top of tacos, um, and again, they're they're really not difficult to put together. It doesn't require any special cooking skill, um, and most of them don't use any processed ingredients at all. So they're actually quite good for you. Um, and there are even some vegetable-based cheese sauces I've seen as well that I've made um, to great success. And I've seen lots of recipes online where if you don't want to use nuts, um, 
A lot of people like to use a combination of steamed potatoes and carrots with some nutritional yeast um, to make what? Che- cheesy sauces. Yeah, they're awesome because the potatoes, when they cook, they get they get very starchy. And so when they're blended up, it almost creates like this gooey, cheesy texture. And they're amazing, like on mac and cheese and uh, on nachos as well. Oh, okay. So, so, so ho, 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 ho. <laughs> Let's discuss here. So we're steaming the potatoes. Like that's the key here. You can't bake it. You can't air fry it. You can't put it in the microwave. Steaming is the key here. Well, steaming or boiling. So either one would work. Okay. Okay. And then what you said carrots to go with it, right? So would the carrot be boiled? Would the carrot be steamed? You would probably, you, you would just prep the carrot the same way that you did the potato. So the potatoes are going to take a little longer to cook. So either put the potatoes in, um, you want to peel them first. So put them first in the steamer basket or in the boiling water. And then maybe five, 10 minutes before they're done, throw in the carrots, strain everything together. And then you're going to put that in your blender with um, your desired seasonings. So a very basic cheese sauce would be those two ingredients along with some nutritional yeast, a tiny bit of lemon juice or apple cider vinegar. Um, I, I, I like to do a little bit of garlic powder in there as well. And, and also miso brings a really nice cheesy flavor as well. So maybe like a tablespoon or so of miso and uh, blend that up. You can add some water to thin it out or vegetable broth to thin it out to your desired consistency. And it really makes a phenomenal cheese sauce. And then I like to season it up depending on the cuisine I'm serving. So if I'm using it for nachos, I might put a little bit of chili powder in there, smoked paprika, and that'll give it a little bit more of a Mexican flavor, like a queso. Wow. Replicating that flavor. That's crazy talk right there. I love it so much. It's really good. You don't knock until you try it. I know you're not knocking it, but in case anyone out there is knocking it, it's actually very good. Giddy up. Yeah, I got to go do that. I think that that's going to be on the menu this weekend. That's what I think right there. I'm going to I'm gonna have my wife taste test that. You know, she's the real barometer on whether or not something's going to work. You know, if, if my wife likes it, I can guarantee you that the recipe is just phenomenal. So I'm going to let you know how this turns out, Chef Lauren Kretzer. I will let you know indeed. Yeah, and similarly, my husband is my guinea pig as well. He will flat out tell me if something is not passing the, the omnivore test. And if, uh, and if he approves the potato carrot sauce, then, you know, I think most people will like it too. Yeah. It it helps to have that, that, uh, you know, not a sounding board, a tasting board. I I don't even know how you would refer to that, you know, other than an (laughs) honest opinion. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then just one last thing for the cheese. Um, if you're making a sandwich, I like to put a little bit of avocado on there, some sliced up olives, um, some nuts on, on a salad, all those things. Again, we're talking about fat and a little bit of um, saltiness. So the olives have that, and um, that that often scratches the itch. So whenever I make pizza, I'll do like a homemade cashew mozzarella. I like to put a little bit of olive on top. Um, and that usually makes me feel like I'm eating something with those familiar flavors that I, that I used to create. Do you find uh, that cooking uh, with plant-based ingredients here, whole food plant-based ingredients, do you, do you find that to be more challenging than the traditional recipes that a lot of us got started with out of the joy of cooking or something like that? Um, maybe initially because there's a little bit of a learning curve. You know, you're experimenting with whole foods to replicate or 
be in place of animal products. You know, they're, they're very different. So I think once you get started, it starts to feel second nature. So I think, um, you know, spending some time, like I suggested earlier, just getting some new cookbooks and experimenting, seeing what you like, um, watching some cooking videos, or even taking a cooking class once coronavirus is over. Um, those are all great ways to just build a really solid foundation. Actually, there's a lot of cooking classes online now, too, that, that people can check out. And once you have the foundations, um, it becomes much easier. And like I said, it eventually becomes second nature. All right. And a lot of people are, you know, through cooking classes and everything else, they are learning so much online. I mean, it, it really, online has become the greatest library in the entire world because all of these resources are at our fingertips. And I know that uh, you've got your own section now in the library, uh, so to speak. <laughs> and you're, you're doing this uh, five-day challenge. Talk to me a little bit about that. What's happening? Yeah, so I'm starting a challenge for anyone who's interested in joining. It's free. It's called Healthy and Whole. And my whole uh, reason for doing this is I just want people to get comfortable going back in the kitchen. So I really think that that's where health begins is homemade food. And it's intimidating for so many people, not only from a skill perspective, but also from a time perspective. I think a lot of people think it's ultra time consuming or it's too difficult. And I think once it's demystified, and you can successfully make a few dishes at home, you'll see it's it's really not as difficult as you might have initially thought. And I think the rewards are just endless. I mean, the food is tastes better. It's better for you. You have that sense of accomplishment. You're instilling healthier habits on your family or friends, whoever you're eating with. And um, I just think it's really worth, you know, focusing on for just a five-day period. And that's what I'm doing in this challenge is just setting you up with all the tips you need to just cook a, a week's worth of a weeknight meals for yourself or for your family. And I'm going to set you up for success with that. I love that. And you know what? Based off of this conversation, I have a sneaking suspicion that these are not, you know, things that everybody can't do. I mean, this is something that everybody can kind of participate in. You know, you were talking about that learning curve up front, but you gave us a lot of practical tips here that it seems like we can implement right away. And so I don't think people should be scared to take this five-day challenge here. Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm setting this up so that if, you're, if you've never eaten a vegan meal in your life, this is something that you can still do. And conversely, if you know, you've been eating plant-based for a really long time, I still think that you know, there are some new valuable tips that um, I'm bringing to the table from my experience, both as you know, someone who's been cooking this way a long time, both in my home and professionally as well. I'm trying to impart what I've learned just to make everyone's life a little easier and more fun in the kitchen too. If somebody wants to sign up, where do they go? So you can head on over to my website. It's www.laurenkretzer.com. And you'll see a prompt there to sign up for the challenge. Or you can follow me on Instagram as well. So that's at uh, Lauren underscore Kretzer. And I'll be posting about the challenge on there too. Yeah. And your Instagram account is just phenomenal. You've got something on here that I have never before seen in my life. And I don't know how I've missed these. I don't know if they're just, you know, widely available and I've just overlooked them my entire life. But right there at the, the top of your page, as we're recording this, you have something called a shishito pepper. So uh, f first, I'm sure I'm just butchering that name. Uh, but second, they look absolutely delicious. No, you did a good job pronouncing. So shishito peppers are amazing and they're actually fairly widely available. 
Um, you can find them at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, and I've seen them in you know conventional grocery stores as well. And they're about the size of a jalapeno. Uh, they're a little wrinkly. And the cool thing about Chichitos is that I like to say they're spice roulette. Most of them are totally mild, but every once in a while you get one that's a little bit spicy and nothing crazy. This is not like jalapeno level heat, um, but uh, definitely enough to, you know, kind of excite your taste buds, <laughs> so to speak. And yeah, they're, they're pretty awesome. The, the plant kingdom is amazing. There's so many different types of veggies out there. It's incredible. I discover new ones all the time. Uh, I love these pictures so much and, and the ideas for going in the kitchen. I mean, another one I'm looking at right here is a buffalo cauliflower taco with cashew ranch slaw and some guacamole. I mean, who wouldn't want to devour that? That just looks amazing to me. Those were so good. And that definitely passed the, the husband test as well that I mentioned before. <laughs> I bet it did. I absolutely bet it did. Uh, <laughs> we will put links to uh, both your website and your Instagram account in the episode notes. And uh, Lauren Kretzer, thank you so very much for your time. This is amazing. Such good tips today. Thank you so much. I hope everyone uh, enjoys these tips and good luck in the kitchen. And indeed, you can find a link to Lauren's website so that you can sign up for the five-day challenge in the episode notes. Now, Lauren, she's a master recipe strategist. Had her on the show before. She always comes up with such wonderful ideas. A couple post thoughts here. As you start to get going with this plant-based diet and you start to get more and more comfortable with it, you, you kind of find your groove, you hit your rhythm... A lot of people then, they start to eliminate salt and oil and sugar completely. And that is definitely something to strive for. But I also think you shouldn't beat yourself up if you don't get there overnight. You will get there, but maybe for some of us, it just takes a little bit of extra time. So don't worry about not being the perfect vegan. Just give yourself a break make progress, and watch your health improve. Simple as that. Now, I am curious, though, about the cheese thing. Lauren brought that up again, right? So that is always the big one for so many people. So what did you do to kick the cheese habit? Were you a cheeseaholic? What did you do to break that habit? Let's get some tips out there. Let's start sharing those with the listeners. So drop us a line here on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC, or you can tweet us at PCRM. Just make sure that you use the hashtag exam room podcast. Let's get some of those good tips out there to get cheese out of the diet. And speaking of tips, we got a whole bunch of them recently on the exam room live when Dr. Vanita Rahman and dietitian Lee Crosby, the fiber queen, they came on the show to answer your questions. And we opened up the doctor's mailbag. They tag teamed it. Great questions. People wondering about how much gut bacteria actually weighs. We're not talking about how much there actually is. We're talking about how much does gut bacteria actually weigh? And can you have too much of it? And then we really, really, I'm talking nerded out on an extreme level when it comes to nutrition. It was fabulous. There was a question about uric acid and squash and pumpkin and how all of that connects. So that's like nutrition next level. And then, of 
course, we also have somebody asking about losing the final five pounds of their weight loss journey when that scale just doesn't want to move. So what advice do they have to offer that person? And then back to the gut bacteria, another great question about getting it back in check after a round, actually three rounds of antibiotics. And the big twist from this person who asked the question, they had just lost 80 pounds and didn't want to gain it back. What advice did they have for getting your gut back on track? We're going to find out right now because it is time to open up the doctor's mailbag and get some answers. It has been entirely too long since you have been on the program, Lee. I'm so glad that you are here. Yeah, I'm delighted to be back. It has been a while, hasn't it? Way, 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 way too long. Time flies when you're sitting in your house. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the first question is yours because you have been waiting so long for this. Uh, Gut bacteria is always a popular question. And so this one comes to us from Facebook. Uh, This person wants to know, what is the total weight of the gut bacteria in a healthy body? And is it possible to have too much good gut bacteria if you're taking probiotics? Okay. I actually was really excited. This came in before the show and I asked for this question because I love gut bacteria in general. Also in part because gut bacteria love fiber and that is my jam. So I had to jump into this. Okay. So weight of bacteria in a human body on average, I had to go to PubMed and pull a study because I don't want to give you guys bad intel. So 200 grams, which is about seven ounces or to put it in practical terms, the weight of a large apple. If I had one, that would be great. So most, the vast majority of those are in the intestines. Now, if you're taking probiotics, there's, I don't know of any specific upper limit that would do that because what I have heard it referenced is that taking probiotics is a little bit like putting a dropper into an Olympic swimming pool. Um, I don't know if it's quite that dramatic, but it's not likely to have a huge effect. And I do want to mention that this is fairly hot off the presses still. So in June of this year, the American Gastroenterological society actually put out new guidelines, basically saying that there's just not sufficient evidence right now for using probiotics to treat some of the conditions that they're often used for things like inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, or even for treating a clostridium difficile infection. Although they did find some data for preventing a C. diff infection or clostridium difficile, and then also some less common conditions, things like ileal, ileal pouchitis, um, which can sometimes happen after medical intervention for inflammatory bowel disease um, or also for low birth weight infants. That's not why most people are taking probiotics. So the nice thing to do here instead is actually to not worry about taking probiotics from a supplement, but is to save your money and grow your own probiotics right in your gut by feeding them these high fiber foods. And that supports the good bacteria that you want and helps edge out the bad bacteria that you don't want. So DIY it on the probiotics with these prebiotic high fiber foods. And and just to recap, did you say that there's as much bacteria there as about the weight of an apple? Yeah. Seven ounces. So a little shy of half a pound. But, and again, most of that is in the gut because that's where there's food for those to eat. Although you do have some on your skin and such as well too. 
That is a lot of bacteria. That is a lot of bacteria. And that is a lot to wrap your head around, too. Uh, Okay. Next question, Lee, sticking with you. Uh, This one comes to us from Lisa on Facebook. A question about glutathione. Uh, Is there any truth to a deficiency of glutathione leading to more severe COVID symptoms? What do we know about that? You know, that was a great question. When I saw it come in, I was like, oh, I'm remembering glutathione from my like, nutritional biochemistry courses, but I've confessed I had to go do a little review on glutathione. Um, I did know the, this much. It is a potent antioxidant in the body. It helps your body detoxify some dangerous substances. But regarding COVID, there is at least one paper that was published in the American Chemical Society and Infectious Diseases Journal that actually does make the case that a glutathione deficiency could lead to more severe COVID-19 disease and poor outcomes in patients. But note that I'm saying hypothesis here. So this would need to be confirmed in larger studies and they make that point. Um, We don't have good clinical data or anything for using glutathione to treat. But the fun part here is that there are things you can do to kind of boost up glutathione levels in your own body the more natural way, which one of those is eating broccoli and broccoli sprouts Now, what's going on with that? They actually contain a compound called sulforaphane, which also helps fight breast cancer. So this is a this is win win. Um, But that particular compound can boost up your own body's glutathione production. So and then in general, because glutathione is has antioxidant properties, like why use it all up when you could be eating other antioxidant rich foods and giving it some support? And then also the last piece to know is that Alcohol, drinking alcohol of any kind depletes glutathione. So I know it's fun, but best to sort of minimize that if you can. All right, Dr. Rahman, this one is coming to you. A weight loss follow-up question. This is from Andrea at 12.08. She said, oh my gosh, my heart goes out to her. My weight loss has plateaued. Who has not been there? So frustrating. She says, uh, I'm 138 pounds at five feet, one inches tall, and I have a BMI of a little over 25. What can I do to get to a normal weight on a whole food plant-based diet? Yeah, Andrea, I, you know, I can relate. I've been there too. Um, you're going along your weight loss journey and you're having success and then you just plateau. Um, it can be very frustrating and very disheartening. Um, and some of the things to think about is, first of all, great that you're following a whole food plant-based diet. It's so important to do that. The other thing to look at is, are you keeping it low fat and, um, you know, really watching those high fat foods like avocados and nuts and seeds and olives, really minimizing those and then avoiding any kind of processed vegan food, which you probably aren't consuming if you're eating whole food plant based like the vegan meats or cheeses. Those are also calorically dense. And then and lastly, if you're if you're watching the fat content and you're still struggling, you know, it's also important to look at our portion sizes. One thing we know that has happened in the U.S. is that our portion sizes have increased steadily. And while I'm not talking about counting calories, I don't think any of us should do that or about starving ourselves. We do need to eat what our body needs. So if we eat more than that, we will gain weight. So just being cognizant of that um, is also important. So I think that that may be something worth visiting also the fat content and then the portion sizes. All right. So you hit that plateau. That's frustrating. And then Dawn is looking toward just before the finish line here. Dr. Ramon, sticking with you, this question is from Dawn at 1221. How do you lose those last five pounds? Do the same kind of principles apply here? Absolutely. I know for me, um, and I think this is true for most people, you know, when we initially start losing weight, the more we have, the faster we lose it. 
But then as we get closer to our ideal body weight, it can slow down. Um, It's like the body really fights to get to that ideal equilibrium. And at that point, it's so important to just um, really focus in on the foods, making sure they are plant-based, making sure they are low fat and really watching those high fat foods, you know, those nuts and seeds, avocados, they really sneak in and they add a lot of calories. They have a very high caloric density. So cutting back on those and then really being mindful of our portion sizes. Again, I think the same principles apply. And again, not counting calories, not starving, but really just getting to where we need to be. All right, Fiber Queen, coming to you. This is a great question here from Vegan Grandma on YouTube, 1223. She wrote this one in. Lee, she wants to know, how can I increase my vitamin E if I'm allergic to nuts and seeds? So what other foods are rich in vitamin E? I mean, that's a tricky question because most, like, those are the main plant-based sources. Um, So no, so wait, she's allergic to nuts and seeds? That's what she says. Yes. Ma'am. Oh, vegan grandma. I am sorry. That's a pain because I say normally I would say, OK, well, let's switch over to some of the seeds. Right. So flax seeds or chia seeds, because typically nut allergies don't always translate. So vitamin E, the other places you're going to get it are when you're going to include small amounts of those uh, higher fat foods. Right. So, again small amounts. We're not looking for much here, but something like a little bit of avocado. There's also some vitamin E in leafy greens, those kinds of things. So you can get it other places, but it's just, it's not very much. But again, if you're eating that sort of whole food plant-based diet, you're likely going to be getting a good amount. Um, The other piece is it tends to be something that it comes with concentrated fats. So there's some question of you know exactly how much we're going to need if we're not eating loads of high fat foods. Um, but again, a little bit of something like an avocado would be a place to go. And again, raw raw leafy greens is going to give you the best in terms of giving delivering the nutrients that they do have. I think vitamin E is not as heat stable as say like a vitamin A would be. So that's probably your best bet. But great question. Again, if you're sticking to whole healthy plant foods, you're likely to be in a pretty good place. All right, Lee, stick with me. Let's get super nerdy here with this next question. This is like master's level nutrition education that's about to happen. This one comes to us from Sheila on Twitter. She'd like to ask if pumpkin or squash has a high level of uric acid or does it somehow cause uric acid in the body to rise? Okay. Uh, no, not that I have seen anywhere. So why are we talking about uric acid? Because typically now there can be other reasons for it, but typically it causes gout. Is anyone's heard of that? It's causes some excruciating joint pain, particularly in the big toe for most people when they have an attack. Um, the things that the foods that do foods that are high in a substance called purines actually trigger the body to take those purines and make uric acid, which, and the reason it causes pain is it builds up in little crystals that get in the joint and it's very stabby (laughs) for lack of a better word. So uh, the foods that contribute to that are particularly seafood uh, and meats. Those are big culprits. Also um, consuming alcohol, particularly beer can increase people's uric acid levels, but the fruits and vegetables for the most part actually almost across the board, are very low in purines, unlikely to lead to any kind of significant increase in uric acid. Pumpkin and squash also in that category, very low in purines, unlikely to cause problems. Beans are a little higher in the purines, but there's actually are, there are data that suggests that eating beans and soy is actually linked to a lower risk of getting gout. So yeah, again, it always it just seems to come back. And this is why I love plant-based nutrition, because if you're sticking to whole plant foods, you're usually in a very good place. 
Dr. Ramon, coming back to you for this next question. And I will say we were just talking about the importance of a group setting when it comes to our health and and the chat box. I just love the fact that everyone in the chat box now is kind of building friendships and they're talking to each other. It's it's really great to see. Uh, This next question comes to us from Raven on YouTube. This one from 1222. She writes, my fiance and I are going to start trying to have a baby. Should I be taking prenatal vitamins? Yes, you should. Um, The reason for that is uh, it's important to get a folic acid supplement. And um, folic acid deficiency is common among women of childbearing age. And we know that insufficient levels of folic acid intake can lead to something called neural tube defects, um, which is a serious type of birth defect. So really important to start taking a prenatal vitamin. Um, You know, some people recommend that all women of childbearing age even if they're not trying to conceive, take it because most pregnancies are unplanned and the levels of folic acid are most important in the first trimester when women may not even realize they're pregnant. So I would recommend doing that. Okay, time for just uh, one more here. This one comes to us from Dawn on Facebook at 1227. I'm going to ask actually for both of you to kind of team up here. goes hand in hand. Uh, Dawn writes, I've been on three rounds of antibiotics. What can I do to restore my microbiome? I recently lost 80 pounds and I don't want to go backwards. So Lee, let's start with you and getting the good gut bacteria back in check. Where should Dawn start with that? Okay, so given those American Gastroenterological Society guidelines, if you were still on the antibiotics, it might make sense to take probiotics. Now that you're off them, there's just not a lot of data on that. So what you're going to want to do, again, is stick to a broad, a nice, broad variety of whole plant foods. And why that matters is because you're getting different kinds of fibers and different breakdowns of phytonutrients that are going to feed and nourish those really good bacteria. You're going to stay away from alcohol. That's just, just, it's napalm for your gut bacteria. You're going to also try and stay away from excess salt and processed foods. And again, wide varieties, a lot different kinds of beans and lentils, you know, apples, oats, whole grains, anything you can think of, all the fresh fruits and veggies that and cooked that you can bring in there. So to stick to as healthy of a diet as you can with a caveat that if you are not used to eating this way, that you ease into it because as you and probably some other people have experienced, if you try and go just full fury and bringing on all the fiber at once, those bacteria are going to have a field day and you're not because that's going to end up with some gas that they're going to make. So again, keeping your diet as whole food plant-based as you can is really going to help to breed the best possible bugs you can get. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Those first two weeks going on a plant-based diet were interesting for sure. Uh, Dr. Rahman, let's do the follow-up here. Somebody doesn't want to put that weight back on. You know, that's such a big thing with yo-yo dieting, and now you throw the antibiotics on top of this and trying to get the microbiome back in check. Specific to weight loss, I mean, how does somebody keep this off and keep it off for good when they're in this kind of predicament? Yeah, you know, it's it's a tough position to be in. I think one of the first things with antibiotics is making sure they're absolutely necessary. They can be life-saving and we should use them, but really talk to your healthcare provider about how important it is that you take them. Is it clearly indicated? Um, you know, having that conversation is important and then doing all the things that Lee just talked about to repopulate your gut bacteria with a he- healthy flora um, is going to be key. 
All right. Uh, thank you guys very much. If we did not get to your questions today, have no fear. We will save them and we will do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. So keep on posting them in the comments section, or you can always tweet them to us at Chuck Carroll WLC or at PCRM. Just make sure that you use that hashtag exam room live. Now, both Lee and Dr. Ramon, they are available for telemedicine appointments at the Barnard Medical Center. And Lee, before I let you go, I would love to ask you about the process when you're meeting with a new patient. Say someone is coming to you and they have high cholesterol or they have high blood pressure, some of those conditions that we were speaking about on the show today. What is that process like for them to get them going with a healthier diet? Yeah. So of course the basics call the front desk and they'll make it all happen. The very first thing I'm going to ask when someone meets with me um, by video at this point is what they're hoping to get out of the session. Cause sometimes they'll have the referral of, Oh, their doctor wants them to lower cholesterol, but actually they want to get something else out of it. So to do that, then what we'll do is go through and do just sort of a basic medical assessment to make sure I've looked at your labs and that we, I know all the different health conditions you're dealing with and medications. We're going to talk about your supplements and vitamins, whatever you're taking. And then we're going to talk about what you're eating, not the like sanitized version that people think a dietitian wants to hear, but you know, just the like warts and all, again, we're all human beings. So just, we'll talk about what the standard sort of your meals are looking like now. And then we're going to talk about how we can make changes to that to get you where you want to go when it comes to your health, whether again, whether that's lowering cholesterol or losing weight or you name it, there are as many different conditions that nutrition can help as there are conditions. So it's, it's actually a really it's a really exciting and rewarding process. So I very much encourage anyone to go ahead and make an appointment and we'll, we'll get started and tackle what's, what's giving you trouble. And Dr. Rahman Lee there talking about working with people, preventing it from hitting the fan, but let's talk about somebody who's already been through it, you know, and they've had a heart attack or they've been diagnosed with cancer. How then are you able to work with them to get them on a healthier path? Yeah, so, so important. And we see a lot of patients in that situation, Chuck. Uh, so first thing I do is a little quite similar to what Lee just said. I ask them what their goals are for the visit. Um, you know, sometimes we as healthcare providers assume certain goals, but it's really important to know what the patient is looking for. And then we make sure we tackle those. And then getting a complete health history from them, their medications, what kind of health issues they're facing with now, what have they faced before, what they've tried so far, and then really talking about their diet, where they are now, where they would like to go, how I can help them, and how changing their diet could help their chronic conditions, whatever they are. And then just working with them, having regular follow-up, giving them tips and suggestions that would be useful to them, and ordering any lab work or imaging studies that would be helpful in their health, such as cholesterol levels or blood sugar levels or markers of inflammation, whatever that is that makes sense medically, we can do that. And then we just partner with them and work alongside them. And sometimes we'll have them meet with someone like Lee um, because um, she's full of valuable information and she can really help them with their diet. And it's a team approach to helping people. You can find a link to the Barnard Medical Center as well as that phone number in the episode notes. So if you're listening to this right now on Apple Podcasts, just scroll right on down, click that link for the BMC and make your appointment today. I'll tell you, we are celebrating a big success here at the Physicians Committee in the fight against the pandemic. We got some really good news from one of our programs. Check this out. 
53% of participants in our Fight COVID-19 with Food series, 53% of those who had type 2 diabetes experienced improvements after learning about plant-based diets. And what's more, more than half of those who also had high blood pressure reported seeing improvements. And two-thirds of participants who were hoping to lose weight, well, they were successful in doing so. And this was a a free eight-week course that was designed for communities that have been hardest hit by chronic diseases and COVID-19. So proud of the way that that came together and that people are receiving the help and the knowledge that they need. And the success that they're having is so great to hear. So cool. And it is more important now than ever. I want to share this health headline with you. The headline reads, Obesity linked with higher risk for COVID-19 complications. Researchers at the University of North Carolina found that people with a body mass index greater than 30 are more than twice as likely to be hospitalized if infected, and 74% more likely than to require intensive care. The report also finds nearly 50% higher risk for death. And because of that, the study's authors are calling for healthy food policies to play a much larger role in combating COVID-19. And keep in mind here that a BMI over 30 is considered to be obese. Alarming, given the fact that 42% of adults in the U.S. fit that criteria. And then when you look at the coronavirus stats, you take politics out of the equation, you take everything else out of the equation, and you just focus on the numbers... You've got 42% of adults who are obese. And then the U.S. has 2 million more documented cases of COVID-19 than the next hardest hit country. And we're also leading the world in the number of COVID-related fatalities by a wide margin as well. So when the researchers at UNC who did that study, when they say that healthy food policies need to play a larger role in fighting this pandemic, they need not go any further than to back up that statement with those numbers. Just some food for thought as we wrap things up. My thanks again to Chef Lauren Kretzer for sharing her amazing tips with us today, and to Dr. Vanita Rahman and the Fiber Queen, dietitian Lee Crosby, for their knowledge as well. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>